wonderful to be here this morning. I always enjoy visiting this church, and it's a delight to be here today and to be able to share with you from the Word of God. And if you have your Bible, I'm going to read some verses from Isaiah chapter 49. Or Isaiah, I think you people say. Is that right? <laughs> Isaiah is the correct way to say it. Uh, Isaiah 49 and verse 8. And this is what it says. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. In the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritance. To say to the captives, come out. And to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. That's as far as I'm going to read. It's always good, of course, to know who your friends are. I mean, your real friends, those you can rely on, who always do you good, when the dust has settled, you can turn to them and say, thank you. And I want to talk about this this morning, because every one of us here in this place this morning share in common a particular set of friends that always do us good. Do you know who they are? Well, they're your problems. We usually regard them as our enemies, actually. We usually do all we can to get rid of them. But the reality is, again and again and again, the things that you would most want to change in your life are the very things that do you the best. And I'm going to build my message this morning around a phrase here in Isaiah 49 and verse 11 let me read it to you again. God is speaking, and I'll explain the context of this in a moment. He says, I will turn all my mountains into roads. The mountains that to you are barriers and enemies, says God, I'm going to turn them into roads. Let me explain the context of this. This period of Isaiah is 150 years after Isaiah himself had lived and ministered in Judah. And he's looking ahead prophetically to a very different day to his own day. After Isaiah had died, the Babylonian Empire had become the superpower of the Middle Eastern world. And in their campaign of imperial domination, they had uh, invaded Judah, which is Isaiah's land, had reduced Jerusalem to rubble, and as you know, had taken most of its inhabitants off into Babylon in captivity. And for the next 70 years, the people of Judah licked their wounds as captains in a, uh, captives in a foreign land. 
And towards the end of that 70-year period, Babylon began to wane as an empire, and Persia, under its leader Cyrus the Great, began to gain ascendancy, and in the course of time became the dominant world power of the Middle East. Now, it's to that era that Isaiah's chapter 40 to 66 is writing and speaking about. Of course, it's given rise in biblical scholarship to the idea that there were two, if not three, authors of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah himself, who wrote the first 39 chapters, and then one or two other writers, some say two, uh, from chapter 40 on to chapter 66. But if we believe in the prophetic ministry and the ability of the Holy Spirit to inspire and reveal truths in the future, this in itself is not a problem. And uh, personally, for what it's worth, I believe in the unity of the book of Isaiah. But this section begins in chapter 40, when while the people are in exile, God speaks to them and says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And now a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every mountain will be brought low. Every valley will be raised up, etc. And in that section, he begins to write about the fact You've suffered the consequences, the reason why God took you into exile because of your sin. But now he says, your sin has been paid for, you've been suitably chastised, and now he says there's going to be a highway in the wilderness for our God. That's the context that runs right through then to the section we're looking at in chapter 49. But in the midst of this, there's this one phrase I want to talk about. I will turn my mountains into roads. Israel is hemmed in there in Babylon, or some of them now have been moved across to Susa, the capital of Persia. They're in the wrong land. Speaks about that earlier in chapter 49. Their inheritance is desolate. They're still captive to a foreign power. They are hungry, it says. They are thirsty. Between them and home lies the Syrian desert, and there's nowhere across for them. There's the great Euphrates River between them and home. That's a barrier. And there's the Syrian mountain range that they cannot cross. And yet God talks to them about, talks to them about restoring the land. And he says, I'm going to turn these mountains that are the barrier that keep you from home into roads. wonder if you listening to me this morning have mountains in your life a bit like that something in your life, you say, if only this one thing could be changed, I'd be a totally different person. One obstacle, if that could be destroyed and taken out of my life, one circumstance, if that could be altered or removed, one sin in my life, if I could have victory over that one area where I constantly find myself falling, man, I'd be such a different person. That one person could move out of my life. Somebody at work. Somebody in your street. Maybe even somebody in your home. I'd be so much holier than I am now. 
I'd be so much more effective than I am now. I'd be such a better person, such a better Christian. You know what God's answer to that is? This mountain that you would love to take out, I'm going to make a road. A road to bring God in, in a totally fresh way into your life and into your experience. Let me give you some examples of this. You may remember in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 in the New Testament, Paul talks about what he describes as a thorn in his flesh. He doesn't tell us what it is, though almost certainly it's something physical. I uh, recently wrote a book on Paul. It's not out yet. It's coming out in a couple of months' time. And uh, looking at the various commentators who write about this thorn in Paul's flesh, if you were to put all the things together people suggest were the problem Paul was dealing with, you'd end up with a medical encyclopedia, I think. It could be anything. And I think there's good reason why it's ambiguous. Because one size fits all. It could be anything. And he says, I have this thorn in my flesh... Not only that, he is unambiguous about its origin. He says it's a messenger of Satan to torment me. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. This thing in my life, he says, is a messenger of Satan. I know where it's come from. It is evil. It's not a good thing. It's a messenger from Satan. It's to torment me. And so Paul did the obvious and logical thing. Three times I pleaded with the Lord... Take it away from me. Isn't that the obvious thing to do? Isn't that what you do? Isn't that what I do? Of course it is. Lord, this thing is not good. This thing is evil. I recognize its origin. This thing comes from the devil. God, please take it out of my life. What did God say to, to Paul? But the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul responds, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness. Why? So that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insult, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulty. When I am weak, then am I strong. Paul says, this mountain, I say, God, take it out. And God says, no. Why not? Because this mountain, Paul, from your perspective is actually going to be a road. Because in your weakness, I am going to demonstrate myself, says God, as strong. I was reading a book by Larry Crabb a while ago. Many of you will be familiar with some of his uh, writing. And Larry Crabb quotes in this book an American psychologist called Albert Ellis. And Albert Ellis has... Uh, devised what he calls the ABC of our emotions. Why do we feel the way we do about things? These ABC. A, he says, there's an activating event. There's something which takes place in your life, in your circumstances. Then B, there is a belief about that event. And then C, there is the consequent emotion. So there's the activating event, that's A. Something takes place, there's a belief about that event, that's B. There's the consequent emotion, that's C. Now says Albert Ellis, you do not go from A to C. The event does not produce the emotion. 
A goes through B. It's the belief about the event that produces the emotion. Let me illustrate. Two men are caught in a rainstorm. And this is Albert Ellis's illustration. Two men are caught in a rainstorm. One is mad and the other is glad. You say to the man who's mad, why are you mad? He says, because it's raining. You say to the man who's glad, why are you glad? He says, because it's raining. Now they both blame the rain, the same event, for totally contrasting emotion. One is mad, one is glad. Now the difference, as Albert Ellis, is this. The first man is a golfer. The second man is a gardener. The first man is mad, he says, because of the rain, but that's because the rain will spoil his golf. The second man is glad, he says, because of the rain, but it isn't because of the rain, it's because his garden is going to grow. And the point he makes is this, that the important thing is not the events that come into our lives, it is our perception of those events, our belief about those events. Now, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says, there's something in my life that I know comes from Satan, I know therefore is evil in its origin, and therefore it needs getting rid of. That's his perception. Lord, take it away. This is a mountain, this is a barrier. God says, no. I have a vested interest, Paul, in your weakness. Because when you're weak, then I am strong. And so then Paul says, therefore, I will boast about my weakness. I delight, he says, in weakness. This is what he asked God to take away a few moments ago. Now he says, I'll boast about it. I delight in weakness. I delight in insults. I delight in hardship. I delight in persecutions. I delight in difficulties. Now, if you met somebody this morning who said to you, I delight in my difficulties. I delight in my persecutions. I delight in my hardships. I delight in my insults. I delight in my weaknesses. You'd probably say to them, I think you need some counseling, wouldn't you? Why does Paul say this? The very thing he says, take it away. Now he says, I delight in it. Why? Because when I'm weak, then am I strong. You know, God has a vested interest in our weakness. I'll tell you this, you can never be too weak for God, but you can be too strong for God. You can never be too poor for God, but you can be too rich for God. You can never be too simple for God, but you can be too clever for God. That's why in the book of Jeremiah, God says, don't let the wise man boast of his wisdom. Don't let the rich man boast of his riches. Don't let the strong man boast of his strength. You can be too rich, too clever, too uh, strong. Instead, boast about this. You know me. And when do you get to know God best? I'll tell you when. When the carpet's pulled from under your feet. That's what Paul is saying in this passage here in 2 Corinthians. Because the mountain of my weakness becomes the road for his strength. You see, you and I always learn far more from our tears than we ever learn from our laughter. Now, it's good to laugh, of course, I enjoy to laugh. But you learn most from the things which hurt us. That isn't because God is the author of our hurts and pains. In Paul's case, he's unambiguous. This is a messenger from Satan. But nothing ever takes God by surprise. And the things that may be messengers of Satan become the things which drive us back to a greater sense of dependency on God that uh, we may have never had without them.
In the book of Job, you know the story of Job, I'm sure. Job is described in the early part of that uh, book of Job as the most righteous man on earth. There's no one like him. That was what God said about Job. He fears God. He shuns evil. And we're given insight in the first chapter of Job of God hauling his angels or calling his angels before him in heaven and amongst them it says was Satan. God hauled him up to heaven and sat him down. Because remember, of course, God never created a devil. When people say to you, how can a good God create an evil devil? He didn't. What God created was the most beautiful of all the angels. One called Lucifer, the morning star, the brightest star in the sky. And on account of his beauty, he became proud. We're told this in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, where you have a record of this. And he was cast out of heaven. And every once in a while, it seems, according to Job chapter 1, God hauled him up to heaven and said, how are you getting on? Satan. Satan said, all right, I'm going to and fro throughout the earth, causing as trouble as I can. God said, what about my servant Job? No one like Job. He fears God. He shuns evil. He's a good man. And Satan said, yes, but the only reason Job serves you, the only reason why Job is a man of righteousness is because you have made life easy for Job. You built a hedge around Job. He's the richest man in the East. He's got a nice wife. He's got nine kids. Everything's going well for Job. Of course he worships you. And God said, all right. If the only reason Job worships me is because life is good for Job, I'll tell you what we do, Satan. We'll take the hedge down and you can do him in. Don't touch his life. Don't hurt his body. But you can do anything else you want to do. There's some good news and some bad news in that, by the way. The good news is Satan needs permission to attack. That's the good news. The bad news is when he asks for it, God gives it. He gives permission. First thing Job knew was that when Seneca running in said, Job, all your sheep have been stolen, taken away. Your servants were killed. I've escaped to tell you. Somebody else came running in and said, Job, your camels have been take, taken off by the Chaldean raiding parties and your servants put to death. Only I escaped to come and tell you. Somebody else came running in with similar bad news and while Job was absorbing this and all his business was gone, somebody came running in with the most tragic news of all. Job, your sons, your daughters were having a party in the eldest son's house when a hurricane came off the desert, hit the house. Every one of your children is dead. And it says in Job chapter 1, Job got up, tore his clothes, fell to the ground in worship. Interesting that, isn't it? If it said he fell to the ground and cursed, we would have understood. A bit hard, maybe, but we would have understood. If he fell to the ground and questioned, we wouldn't think twice about that. He fell to the ground and worshipped, said, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Then his wife turned nasty. You remember, she said, curse God and die, let him finish you off. He said, you're talking like a foolish woman. So that didn't help their marriage <laughs> or their relationship. Then he had three friends came on the scene. The best thing those three friends did was say nothing for seven days. Then they spoiled it by opening their mouths and saying, Job, there must be something wrong with you. You only reap what you sow. What have you been doing, Job? I haven't been doing anything. Job, think harder. These things don't happen to good people. There must be something wrong with you, Job. What secret sins have you been committing? They said in the dead of night when nobody's looking. What are you doing, Job? I can't think of anything, said Job. They said, think harder, Job. That's a lie. 
What were your sons and daughters doing in their house that day? The hurricane hit it and flattened it. You don't know, do you, Job, that this didn't happen by accident. They must have been up to something, Job. And Job went in a deep, deep depression. The worst day in history is the day my father was told you've been given a son, said Job. I wish that day could be written out of history. One of the bleakest chapters in the book of Job is Job 23, where Job says, I look to the east, the west, the north, the south. I say, where is God in all this? And I don't see him at all. I'm neglected, he says, even by God. Became suicidal. Do you know what Job said at the end of the book? Job 42 and verse 5, I'm going to read it to you. Job says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. My ears had heard of God. I knew what there was to know about God. I could recite it. I could stand up and declare it. I knew the facts. The only problem was, I'd never seen God, but now I've seen God. When did Job see God? Had he been to some great Bible conference? Had he had some experience of God, some, you know, zip down the spine? Woo! I've seen God now. Whew. No, he went through, I've counted them, 37 chapters of suffering. And do you know what Job discovered? The mountain is the road. The thing that to me is the enemy is actually my friend. The very thing which threatened me, the very thing which hurt me, the very thing which switched the lights off in my life, and I went through a long tunnel of darkness. That was the very means by which God, he says, came into my life in a whole new way. I've seen God. You see, I can't talk about this this morning and not know that this is relevant to 99%, if not 100% of us in this room. There may be one out of 100 who's having a good life right now. The rest of you have got problems, isn't that right? There are things in your life. You'd say, God... If only that thing could be changed. If only that could be taken out of my life. I'd be such a better person. Or maybe that very thing is the very thing that God is using as the avenue, the road to bring into your life something so much richer. The mountain is the road. I remember reading some by Watchman Nee one day, and Watchman Nee talks about the fact a lady came to speak to him at a meeting at which he was speaking, said, Mr. Nee, would you please pray for me? He said, certainly. What is your need? She said, I need patience. I'm an incredibly impatient person. Please pray that God will give me patience. He said, certainly. Let's kneel together. And so apparently they knelt together in this room where they were, and Watchman Nee began to pray and said, Lord, I know nothing at all about this lady except she has a need for patience. I know nothing about her present circumstances, but I want to pray that you'll bring into her life such difficulty, such hardships, such traumas, such tribulations that she won't know what to do. And this lady, says Watchman Nee, got up, grabbed him, shook him and said, Stop, I've got enough of that already. He said, Madam, you don't understand. Tribulation produces patience. That's a quotation from Romans chapter 5. Tribulation produces patience. If you want patience, madam, you need trouble. 
So don't ask what's for me to pray for you, will you? But you know, sometimes on a superficial level, I'm like this. Though I'm learning not to do this. God, this is a problem. Please take it away. God, I don't like this. Please remove it. God, I, I don't like this either. Pretty please just change that. And this person, I wish they'd go and live somewhere else. I learned to say, Lord Jesus, this is probably my biggest problem, but thank you so much for it, because in it you make me weak. You expose my foolishness. In it, you expose my inadequacy. And thank you when I'm weak, then I can discover your strength, your power. I know a man, a very godly man, he's now 92 years of age. He's had a little saying for much of his life. Very simple little saying. Five words. For this I have Jesus. I've heard him preach on this and I've heard him refer to it in situations. I've heard him talking to people in difficulty and saying, For this you have Jesus. A few years ago he had a stroke and I telephoned his wife regularly to find out how he was doing. One day I phoned her, called her, and she was at home. She said, uh, he's been released from the hospital this morning. He's sitting here in the lounge right now. She said, I'll pass the telephone to him. He'd like to hear your voice. But uh, his speech is slurred, and he probably, you probably won't understand anything he may try to say to you. But you speak to him. So she passed the telephone. I said, I'm so sorry to know that you're having to go through this difficult, difficult time. And he spoke and I heard exactly what he said. He said, for this, I have Jesus. It's true, my speech, his speech had gone. If he got up to walk across the room, he's like a ship without a rudder. He didn't know where he would end up. But for this, I have Jesus. And just after that, I was speaking at an event in England called Spring Harvest, which uh, runs every Easter. It runs on two sites, draws about 80,000 people for five days. And I was speaking one of the evening celebrations at that event, and I quoted this. For this I have Jesus. I talked about this man. A few weeks later... I got a letter in the post, came from a lady, she said to me, I was at Spring Harvest, the night you talked about, for this I have Jesus. So I tried to find you afterwards and I couldn't find you. And I got your address from the Spring Harvest office. I want to tell you a bit about myself, she said. A couple of years ago, my husband was killed in a road accident. It was the worst thing that could have happened to me. We have two young children. She said, the day before he was killed, a friend of mine wrote me a letter, and in the letter she enclosed a little yellow velvet bookmark which had on it, for this I have Jesus. And my friend had actually printed those little yellow velvet bookmarks. And I, she said, when I opened it, and I said, oh, that's nice. And I put it down the table. 
She said the next morning a policeman came to my door and told me my husband had had an accident in his car on the road. Would I come with him to the hospital? When I got to the hospital, she said he had died and I had to identify his body. We went to the school, picked up my two children, both in elementary school, and we came back to our home. As I walked into our home, she said, there on the table left from yesterday was this little bookmark. For this I have Jesus. She said, I cannot tell you what that has meant to me. So much so, she said, we've put on my husband's tombstone, for this we have Jesus. This is bigger than me. This frightens me. This threatens me. This breaks my heart. It doesn't frighten Jesus. It's not bigger than Jesus. Back in Isaiah 40, and uh, the context of these statements is important. He says in Isaiah 40 and verse 3, there's the voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. What is the road that the mountains become, or turn your mountains into a road, is not a road to get you and me out of our problems. It's a road to bring God in. It's a highway for our God. Now what we're mostly looking for is a highway for me to escape on. Most of our praying, isn't it? God, change this. Take me out of this. Help me to escape from this. But this whole section of Isaiah talks about the fact in the wilderness there is a highway for our God. And by the way, it's not even a highway out of the wilderness. It's in the wilderness. It's in the difficulty. The mountain. That's you as the barrier that keeps you from getting home, that keeps you from getting back to your inheritance. This mountain range, this barrier that is so threatening to you. It is the road. Because it is this very thing which will drive you back to dependency on me. God is not the architect of our problems. At least he's not the architect of those things that are evil. He wasn't the architect of uh, the attack on Job. Of course, God permitted it. But Satan was the architect of it. He was not the architect of Paul's thorn in the flesh. It's a messenger from Satan, that's true. But God doesn't sit in heaven and say, Oh no, Satan is really up to mischief down there. What in the world are we going to do about that? But even when the devil attacks as he does, that's the very thing which throws us back on God. Some of you know I had a heart attack here in Toronto. Actually, it's a dangerous place to come. Two years ago. Just over two years ago. And somebody said to, my, uh, to, to, to somebody I know, what's this going to do to his faith now, huh?
Well, actually, it's when you get into your biggest crises. That isn't where you lose God. That is actually where you find God. And I would guess this, that amongst us here this morning, some of the most strategic events in our lives that have caused us to grow and mature have been the things which hurt us. And if you look at the rest of Isaiah 49, he says in verse 14, if the people say, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me, God's answer is, can a mother forget the baby at her breast? Have no compassion on the child she has born. And then in verse 16 he says, See, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. He says, if you think God has forgotten you, you think God has neglected you, God has left the picture somehow. He says, look at my heart, I'm like a mother. This is a picture of the motherhood of God here. A mother never forgets her child. Look at my heart. And he says, look at my hands, you graven on the palms of my hands. And you know that you're graven on the palms of his hands with nails. When the lights have gone off and life seems dark, you don't know what is happening, that's the time you say, Lord Jesus, I have no clue what you're doing. But you know exactly what you're doing through this. Thank you. We've prayed for the suffering church this morning. I'm so glad we have. But you know where the church is healthiest? It's probably where it suffered the most. That's a historical fact, isn't it? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church because in trouble we say, God, this, we're out of our depth. We bring you in. We discover a highway for God. The mountain is the road. 